participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first-class citizens. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. So today we're going to talk about the swing state of swing states. It's a state with a big Senate race coming up in November and one of the keys to the White House. The winning formula for Democrats to win in Ohio, and by the way, the winning formula across the country, has everything to do with how the campaigns and the parties are mobilizing new American majority voters. We just saw a few days ago how the Republican-controlled Senate voted down three gun control proposals in the wake of the horrific tragedy in Orlando. These kind of aggressive policies are a real threat to our progress in this country. So put simply, we can't afford to lose the Senate race in Ohio, we can't afford to lose the Senate, and we cannot afford to lose the White House in 2016. The ugly reality is that most electoral campaigns underinvest in voters of color and take them for granted. Campaigns assume that voters of color are going to vote for Democrats no matter what and no matter what they do. And some campaigns even dismiss voters of color because they assume low-income people just won't turn up on Election Day. And that is wrong. That is so, so wrong. So we have to keep saying this mantra. Democrats cannot win without large turnouts of voters of color in 2016 and in the foreseeable future. Democrats cannot win without large turnouts of voters of color. So something has to change. There's a new powerful tool. Actually, it's a set of scorecards that are just out. Democracy in Color investigated what Senate campaigns are doing to reach out to voters of color. It's logical. The whole goal of this is to help campaigns and committees improve their strategies and increase their chances of winning, to ignite a broader dialogue around the importance for Democratic campaigns and parties to start seriously investing in, engaging, and mobilizing voters of color. So in the scorecard, we evaluated how the campaigns allocate their budgets and we measured their investment in communities of color. We took a look at their diversity in their campaign staff and their consulting contracts. We assessed their coordination with on-the-ground voter engagement efforts. So the result are scorecards entitled the 2016 Fannie Lou Hamer Report Cards, and you can be one of the first to look at this whole round of report cards on democracyandcolor.com right now. Let's dig into what is happening in Ohio. And I'm joined by two men who are intimately involved in the Ohio electoral politics this year. But some background first. In 2012, Barack Obama won the state of Ohio with 41% of the white vote and 96% of the black vote. When Ted Strickland, who's a former governor, was vying for the Senate seat this year and he was running for re-election in 2010, he won only 38% of the white vote. His campaign right now, the scorecards show, is focused on winning back the white vote over engaging voters of color. We believe at Democracy in Color this is a grave mistake. It's a losing mistake. And the Strickland campaign right now has a score of 3.2 of 5, which isn't exactly failing, but it isn't an A. So there's a lot of work to do. Discussing Ohio more is Sabod Chandra, managing partner of the Chandra Law Firm and former director of law for the city of Cleveland. David Pepper is a chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. I understand you recently read Brown is the New White. The central thesis is that the new American majority, which is a multiracial progressives, are actually the existing voting bloc. It has the majority now, and I, I'm assuming that means in Ohio, uh, if everyone's engaged in voting. And that means that the party needs to do things differently. Um, 
But there's been indications many state-level parties just aren't able to turn that pivot that quickly in terms of how their money and, and, and voter engagement, who who are actually the swing voters, the true swing voters. Talk to me about that. Um, what what does that kind of information and data that's in that book and in dis- discussion, how does that influence actually being able to win in, in Ohio? When you win these Democratic seats? I, I Honestly, I think that the, the contribution that book will make short and long term is enormous. And our goal through this cycle and beyond is to sort of execute on the lessons that that book teaches, uh, which is if we're going to win, uh, we've got to energize this new American majority, which, you know, Ohio is the template of the country, and we, we basically reflect almost the exact breakdown of the country. So we need to do that here and in every way we can. And you mentioned Nina uh, Turner. She was, when I ran for party chair a year and a half ago, she she was a, we, we basically ran together. And I don't know if she mentioned that. And she, when she, be, she became what we call our chair of party engagement. Now she has left and been on leave because she was out campaigning for Bernie Sanders and we were neutral. But she helped us think about how to recreate and redesign the party uh, and this party engagement area that she oversaw, which is now a sort of a division of the party, uh, it's all about trying to structure differently, have it be all about constituency building. You know, last night we had our first ever iftar. Um, the, 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 you know, when the, the, the day of fasting is over and we had 120 Muslim Ohioans all over the, the state. end of Ramadan. Yeah, sure, right? exactly. But then the, in the meal after fast is called an iftar. We had at the Ohio Democratic Party headquarters. Um, Muslim Ohioans from all over Ohio came to that. Uh, we have, and that's a new thing. That's a new never been done before. It was amazing, it, and it was a, one of the best things I've been part of. Uh, we have, we are, we take very seriously the need to have diversity in everything we do, from staff to candidate recruitment. Uh, we have to do, as as I think the book uh, explains, we got to get out of this what they sort of the the white guy consultant habit, where everyone who seems to to do any work for major parties is all all look the same and don't look at all like the new American majority. It's just not a smart way to invest your money when you're trying to reach out to a diversity of people. So we, we recently had for the first time a minority vendor summit and we brought in vendors from around the state and said, we, 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 need, to, we need to have our candidates and anyone who comes to Ohio uh, spend in a way that reflects the diversity of our, of our state uh, in every way we can, and we gave best practices on how to get involved. We ourselves have started to use folks who were there. We had Cornell Belcher come in to, to inspire them about, because it's a very similar, his, his, what he talks about is very similar to the book. So in every way we can, and, and by the way, this goes all the way down, uh, and I'm very, maybe the most, one of the things I'm most proud of that we're doing, we need to get staff, diverse staff at the very beginning all the way through, and not just in the minority engagement positions or the political, it's gotta be everything, finance, you know, media, communications. And we've figured out, it all starts going back to college. Uh, it, it can't just be all of a sudden at 30 years old, you're trying to find people. So we've created a fellowship program where we partnered with uh, folks at um, Central State, a historically black college here in Ohio, and we provided stipends to college kids to be you know, paid organizers with the party while they're still in school. And if you did, and here's the, and I met with them, it was a wonderful meeting. And they said to me, we can't volunteer for free. Our bills are too much, our tuition's too much. So thank you for doing this. Cause if you didn't do this, we'd have to go work at a restaurant or something else. So we're trying to create a model starting way back then Get folks the skills and the training, not have it be free to intern because that's going to automatically be exclusive. A lot of the people we need to get involved and then we get them the skills so that when in the fall Hillary Clinton starts hiring or in the summer, we've got people ready to go to work with her then and go from there. So we we believe very much in starting this pipeline as early as possible and then those are the people who become the finance directors or the political directors and ultimately the candidates, the consultants, etc. So it goes all the way through from front to back. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's a good long a long term plan, but uh, I'm feeling the urgency of a Senate race in this state, um, and there is an opportunity for uh, to replace Republican Senator Rob Portman, who's running for reelection. Uh, Ohio Governor Ted Strickland has he got the memo? 
Has he got the memo about what the the the, the focus on uh, diversity and engaging voters of color? Is his campaign uh, doing that? Is it oriented that way? I think so. I mean, I think he's got a diversity of staff. I, I know of that. I don't know what he's uh, what decisions he's made in, in terms of who he's using. But what we are trying to do long term is, and this is something the DNC, I think, is also figuring out. I saw it their numbers uh, the other day they released uh, and looked better. But what we want to do is actually, as a party, and this is, again, short or long term, set the tone. We, by having the Minority Vendor Summit, we want to be able to say, hey, to every candidate, from Ted Strickland to the next person running for governor, hey, we've done some homework here. And we believe and we insist that when you make decisions about how you spend all this money you're raising – that money is invested in a, in a way that reflects the diversity of our party. And guess what? We've done your work for you because here's a printer. Here's a publisher. Here's a caterer. Here's a pollster. And so what we've done is we're gathering. We, we've just we've begun this and we're going to keep building it. But we want to make you know these candidates' job a lot easier by saying we've done the homework it's a principle we all need to abide by. And, and so long-term, that's what we're building. Right. Let me ask you, Sabot, your thoughts about not only the, the Strickland race, which I think is really important. I want to hear your, your thoughts about that, but how quickly uh, the state party is going to be able to pivot for this new you know, reality about who actually are the voters well, in the Democratic but, but Party. Before I answer that, I think it's important that I help complete David's answer by giving you the contrast. Because what we're talking about here is an effort among Democrats and progressives to get better about the way we actually live and reflect our values. But I think it's important that we we not uh, just beat ourselves up, but that we look at the contrast with what the other side of the aisle is offering right now. I mean, they're offering Donald Trump. They're offering naked, unvarnished hate. They're offering attack a judge because he's of Mexican descent and say he can't do his Which, job. Which, by the way, is extremely dangerous. It, it is extremely dangerous and xenophobic and, is, and brings up all kinds of hatred within the populace that Cory Booker eloquently talked about today, how we have to stand up to that. But I think it's important that you understand when we're talking about Ohio, what some of the history is here. And I'm not talking about history 200 years ago. I mean history like the last decade. In 2006, not that long ago... The Speaker of the House was John Husted. He is now the Ohio Secretary of State. As Speaker, he adopted into law a statute that provided that poll workers had the discretion to demand of voters coming before them, are you a U.S. citizen or not? If you answered yes, the next question on the list in the statute was native-born or naturalized, a completely irrelevant question to the issue of whether or not you can vote. And yet... That's what they were authorized at their discretion to ask. The next question, if you said naturalized, was give me your certificate of naturalization on the spot. Now, a number of Ohioans of immigrant descent uh, or, you know, who were immigrant Ohioans, U.S. citizens, challenged that. I was one of their lawyers. That Those folks included Laura Bustani, who is the lead plaintiff, longtime civic activist, Lebanese-American, but also the former first lady of Ohio, Dagmar Celeste, Austrian-born. Why? They said, we have no idea where our certificates of naturalization are. We're duly registered American citizens and voters. Why should we have to do that? So you have to understand that at the same time while we're talking about the Democratic Party reforming itself and getting better in the way that it engages... On the other side, we have people who are not only offering nothing, they're offering discrimination and hate. And what's happened that we've seen in this cycle, and maybe ultimately we'll view it as a service, is that all the dog whistles are finally becoming loud barks. All of the things they've tried to do to divide people and to hurt people are now finally coming into crystal clarity. And I think when that contrast is evident, I think it's become going to become much more e it's going to become much easier for the new American majority that Steve Phillips talked about in Brown is the New White to coalesce around the progressive movement. David, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, in a, in, a, in a way, and it's painful every day. I mean, I was with the, the group last night at our event thinking, and I said this, you know, it's, it's not only painful to hear what Donald Trump says every day, but to, to know that even though he's behind right now, that 40% maybe like it is even more painful. So it's a painful moment, but I do think it's an opportunity. 
to if this is going to become a battle of visions of America, one is the new American minority vision, uh, and and a group of people embracing that is our future, and the other is basically the the Donald Trump world resisting it as much as they can. And my hope is that there's a mandate this November, not just about individual people or even issues, but about the country and where we're going. What kind of country we're going to be. And that's where Mm -hmm. I get the competitive side going. I want to run up the score. I I want the result of November to be no one ever will want to run a campaign like Donald Trump did ever again. And even the Republicans get better because they think... You don't want to be that guy ever again. This country embraces diversity. Let's tell the world that, by the way. Let's have the world think, wow, when that one guy tried to run a divisive, mm-hmm. whites-only, you know, non-immigrants campaign, he got so throttled that all of us learn never again, and, and we don't even have such a horrible conversation. So my, my attitude is it, it is becoming a battle over two visions of our country, and if it's going to be that, let's go, let's go to town and win it so big that, that we don't have that battle again. So my question is, and we heard a lot from you, David, about the way that the Ohio Democratic Party is going to do things differently. Mm-hmm. I guess what lessons are learned? I mean, how many votes did Trump get in Ohio anyway? He Do actually, it? the ir- irony here is uh, John Kasich really made, there was an energy in Ohio that this was the last moment to stop Trump. Um, and so you had, we have, we call it a closed primary, but it's not really closed. You can come to the polls and say, I'm a Republican today and vote in, and you're declaring yourself a Republican by voting that primary, but you actually could have been a Democrat or an independent. A lot of people in Ohio showed up to vote in that primary, in the Republican primary, to stop, to, to vote against Donald Trump. So he actually didn't just lose badly to Kasich. He only got 22% of the total votes cast. So there are parts of Ohio that were drawn to his message, but he didn't do very well here. And I actually think the same people who are energized to vote in that Republican primary in March, I think we're going to see Democrats very united and a whole lot of independents and a, and, and a group, a, a large group of moderate Republicans who will stop him in the fall. So this is not a state that I think at the end of the day even when the state votes Republican over the years, at least, it's generally gone with more moderates. So I think this is a state that actually will stop Donald Trump. And the Republican primary showed that even on that side of the aisle, they just weren't that excited about him from a big picture standpoint. Yeah, none of us yeah. are overconfident, but we, we do have a faith in our people. I mean, Ohio is the bellwether state of the country. And, you know, we reflect the common sense and solid values of the American people. And so... I believe that with a lot of hard work, the kind of work that happened in 2008 and 2012, with literally thousands of volunteers deployed to go door to door and engage voters face to face, because I'll bet you here's what the kinds of conversations are going to be had. You're going to have you know young volunteers and middle-aged volunteers and elderly volunteers go to doors, knock on doors, and they're going to be some undecided people, some people who are torn between their fear about what's happened to the country economically on the global stage, their fears about the future their fears about whether the next generation will be as well off as you know they were relative to their parents. So the people are afraid. And when those folks are engaged in a real conversation one-on-one, it's not going to be about the hate. But, it's going to be about the vision see, of the future see, and I, what kind I, of country we're going to be. I mean, I'm hearing you, but I'm having an, a hard time wrapping my brain, especially in light of what you both said about your confidence and how Trump did not do well, that it's a, it's a decision between a Trump or a Clinton as a presumptive nominee. Instead, it's a decision between whether I'm going to vote or not. And am I wrong about that? Well, or no, am I wrong? Absolutely so, right about so that. So what it, what so is he, happening in terms of expanding the electorate he, here in this it, state? Well, here's the best news, and I'm glad you came to that. Uh, and this is a, again a key part of the new American majority. The, the the thesis of of Steve's book is we had to spend as a party, you know, and candidates are going to run a lot of TV ads. The most important thing we can do is get our own voters motivated to vote. And when we do that, and like make it easy well, for them and make it easy and stop, get rid of the obstacles, but then also motivate and energize. And we know the best way to do that is the ground game, the phone calls, the door knocks. And the only way to do that, when you know that there are millions you need to call in in door knock, not hundreds of thousands, you need a capacity of thousands of volunteers. If the numbers just don't work, if it's a few hundred, it's got to be thousands. When we've had those thousands 
like in 8 and 12, we get to everybody and the voter turnout is sufficient and we win. When we don't, like in 14, I was a candidate that year, it, the math never worked. You cannot get to those people. So what we have done more than anything else in the last year, beginning in October, we talked about this at luncheon today, we, for the first time ever, didn't we haven't waited for the presidential campaign to come in and save us by building that capacity, by building the infrastructure. We brought on a staff of 30 all over the state that since then have been t- going, to, calling people, going to meetings, showing up and saying, join our ground game, be part of our volunteer network, be an activist, to the tune where we now have tens of thousands of people who agree to do that. And that is how, in the end, you win elections. And here's the very good news. Forget all the rhetoric and all the crazy talk. Donald Trump has no idea how to organize. He doesn't believe in it. He's not willing to invest in it. We now have... Well, I just heard that he was rejecting the help of right, he, his own party. He has he no right, he has no concept of the ground game. So while we, right now we have more staff in Ohio, we're, we're well over 100, probably halfway to 200. That's bigger than his entire national campaign. And I'm talking just field staff, the people who are doing exactly what Sabo just said, showing up at the open market, showing up, you know, at a school or a parade and signing people up, building the capacity to get to those voters that, that it, then in the end is the key to that diverse turnout. And the, the good news is, and again, we're not, we're planning for a tight election like Ohio always is, but that difference in organizing and our, our talking to ourselves, our own voters about showing up is the way we're going to win. And that's where I think we, we, the path was shown at 8 and 12. But he, the, the, the problem with 8 and 12 was what came a month after. And that is because parties like this party have waited for the presidential candidate to build it all for us, swoops in from all over the country, young people, money, know-how, technology. And then a week after the election, They're it gone. all disappears. And then what happens? We lose, we lose, we lose. And that's why Barack Obama has faced a minor, a Republican majority Senate House, because what we didn't do is keep building. So what we've done this year, and we think and we're building And then we a, give up the Secretary of State's well, office we lose to all, people. Yeah, and we yeah. lose in 10, and they suppress the vote. So this year we said, never again are we going to wait. So we built our infrastructure long before we knew who was going to be the president, the presidential primary winner. We, we pulled together tens of thousands of those activists ourselves as a party. We raised the money to do it. Now the winner of the primary inherits this amazing infrastructure that we've built. So we've got a head start over Donald Trump in winning November. But the key long term, and this is, again, even more important in the non-presidential year where it's harder to convince people it's important to vote. We now have an infrastructure that we built and that we will retain in November and December and January, yeah. unlike what happened the last two yeah. cycles. And I, you mentioned, you both mentioned, you know, the, the, the losses that, that happen in these midterm years or, you know, down ballot. I, I want to ask you again about what it's going to take for Ted Strickland to win that Senate seat because the Democrats have a real problem right now with the Senate. Um, so your thoughts? Look, speaking candidly, and I I owe that to you, I mean, I, I do have some concerns about Governor Strickland and his capacity to win that because of the unusual dynamic in which he is not from Northeast Ohio where the bulk of the you know Democratic Party votes are, the plurality is. And um, for some reason, his sense of or the connection between people in uh, urban Cleveland and Governor Strickland, even through his term as governor, is somewhat minimal. But the fact of the matter is he has to win that Senate race if we are going to be able to appoint Supreme Court justices who are going to protect our civil rights. It is imperative. And so I believe that a lot of Governor Strickland's success in running for the Senate is going to be largely dependent upon the kind of infrastructure we build that David has been talking about um, and the strength and vitality of the presidential campaign, the coattail effect, if you will, that that's going to be a big part of it. And a lot of it is going to be his own ability to go raise money, get on TV, fight all of the special interest money that's going to be aligned against him. We have a model for that in this state, and that is Senator Sherrod Brown. Senator Sherrod Brown is is really one of my heroes. Here is somebody who faces down millions and millions of dollars in advertising from special interests, anti-environmental groups, uh, you know, supposedly pro-business groups, but they're really just pro-big corporate interest groups. And they put advertising on him that makes him look like the world's biggest schmuck. And yet the, the electorate 
understands that he is somebody who rolls up his sleeves, both literally and figuratively, and fights for them. And I think if Governor Strickland is able to project that, while at the same time appealing to more minority constituencies than he's been able to historically, then combined with the presidential coattail effect, then I think he has a winning race. That's a lot of ifs, but it's all come together. And and, uh, I I always say... I don't like the use of the term minority when it comes to voting just because of how the electorate is becoming diverse and there's no you know, majority as we're coming nationally. Right. Um, how is his campaign doing with that then? I think uh, does, he, my, my, does he recognize? I think it's still very early. I think it's still very early to tell. I mean, David probably has more insight into that. I've been more engaged with the voter protection work than with that particular campaign. Um, you know, he's going to have to sharpen his message. There is a reason that the the Democratic establishment, the Senate campaign committee, you know, recruited him, wanted him to be their favorite candidate, and that was because of the advantages they felt that he would have in terms of name recognition and having a leg up. Um, whether he can bring together the remaining pieces to get to a majority is really something I think is beyond my pay grade. Mm. Well, let, let me jump in. Um, he, here's what here's uh, what you should know about Governor Strickland. He has taken incoming of $20 million in negative ads, more than I think anyone in the country. And despite all that money, most most political figures, you take $20 million against you in every attack you imagine, you, you're done. I mean, you, you are down by 20, your campaign's probably done. Ted Strickland's still tied, despite all that. Uh, his opponent is, is not very well known. His opponent has a appro- job approval rating somewhere in the 20s. Uh, so the thing that Ted brings to the table as a statewide matter, is a is a brand and a guy who's viewed as having been a good public servant, uh, having having been governor a tough time, but congressman for many years, and of tremendous personal yeah, integrity. Yeah, he's he's got, a kind yeah. person. I mean, he's a, he's literally a minister. Yeah, he, he's what he's what you when you think I want someone who's a public servant who's in it for the right reasons. People know that about Ted Strickland. So even after twenty million dollars of ads. A lot of people are, there are nasty ads. People are just like, that's not the guy we know. So I think he's in a position to win. Uh, and if I'm his opponent after 20 million, I'm thinking, my gosh, what else can I do? I mean, we've thrown the book at this guy for a year. And so I think now is the time, though, to do what you're talking about. We need it between our infrastructure, his messaging, his grassroots work. Uh, but the, the, I think there's an opportunity. But the fact that he is he is positioned now uh, it, where he is after all that money and attack, I think if we do our job on our end, if he does his job, uh, and I think we can get that over the finish line. And I also think that, Donald Trump is so polarizing um, that that Rob Portman has his opponent, and this is happening around the country, has really struggled to deal with it. Did so, he? Did he endorse? Yes, it? he's endorsed him. He said it'd be a positive thing for his campaign. The next day, he runs away from him, and, and I think that that the his inability to to do what other Republicans to give them credit have done. Mark Kirk, John Kasich. State Republicans, state house, who've said, "I can't, I can't endorse this guy. He's too much." Yeah, we're and we're hearing this last week. Yeah, his opponent has been unwilling to do that. I think that really hurts him. I mean, last night at that ceremony, it was uh, Ted Strickland's wife was there. They, they are all. I I can't say all, but that group understands the stakes, and I'm sure are all uh, perplexed that Rob Portman has said, "I support this guy." So all around the state, I think it will play out. And and this conversation has sort of connected something in my mind about Governor Strickland's personal qualities and integrity, while at the same time, the the opportunity or challenge presented by Donald Trump, and that is this. I mean, even at today's luncheon, where Governor Strickland spoke most passionately and with the greatest conviction and authenticity was when he started talking about Donald Trump and his personal offense, Governor Strickland's personal offense at the kind of bile coming out of Donald Trump's mouth. It is so contrary to who Ted Strickland is as a person, as a human being, as a public servant, that it it fires him up. And so I think that what you'll see is a kind of synergistic combination of Ted Strickland's sincere, genuine indignancy about the wrong path, the hateful path that Donald Trump would lead us all down, including hate toward the new American majority, combined with the the electricity of the presidential campaign. And I think what you'll ultimately see is not just a coattail effect, but 
Governor Strickland, in many ways, being a very effective, authentic surrogate for Hillary Clinton across Ohio. And I think those things in combination, I think, will motivate the new American majority to realize Ted Strickland's in our corner against this hate. So you're both, you're both big Ohio political players. I get that. And I'm just hoping that his campaign um, really embraces expanding the electorate hit their role in actually registering and engaging voters and talking directly to the multitude of it's not a black and white state it's 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 you know everyone's here as you've said yeah. um, in order to win um, because I I believe you that he's uh, that that we need him in the Senate. So, uh, but to win, uh, and to be clear, I mean, we, different. our party plays a big role in a lot of that organizational work in partnership with with the campaign. I mean, in the big picture of campaigns, most campaigns they're about raising money for television, right? And the infrastructure. A, a well-run party, party is normally. When I say to people, "Hey, if you if you're interested in TV ads, go give that candidate." If you want to pay for the infrastructure that doesn't mean they're talking about, that's normally what a party does. And we we are so we're playing that role. And here's another example. For the again, we had our first event like last night ever. A year ago, we created our first ever Hispanic Latino Caucus in the state of Ohio, and it's been wonderful. A lot of energy all over the state. Another critical population. So so we're doing that, and all that frankly ties into the Strickland campaign. It'll benefit the presidential campaign, and so we. Prov- I mean, long term, the best place for this to happen will be in the year to year organizing that a party does, and then the candidates all. You know, they need to get it, they need to be part of it, but they also benefit if the parties have their act together on these types of issues. I want to ask you something else. Um, you were talking about how the infrastructure for presidential campaigns, and since we've only we've had the, recently the primary, right. um, you know, engage people, but they come and then they go. I want to talk to you about both the Bernie Sanders infrastructure that was here mm-hmm. in Ohio, the Hillary Clinton infrastructure that's continuing to build in the state. Um, what you, you know, first of all, uh, are we going to see a tail, you know, kind of a long tail effect from the organizing that the Bernie Sanders folks did in the state, particularly around the younger voters on college campuses and and, and so forth? Yeah, I think so. I think I I would say I got to know both campaigns pretty well. We had a big dinner. They were both here. We 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 actually as a party, we've been very intensely neutral, not neutral in a passive way, but proactive. Bernie Sanders had meetups at our headquarters, packed standing room only. We loved it. We welcomed them as we would anyone else. Um, they were Hillary Clinton organizing events, so we got to see them both. Um, there was a huge grassroots uh, support for Bernie Sanders. It was much more volunteer-based, and so our hope is to is to make sure as we move forward that we're capturing a lot of those folks. And my hope is, and it's not going to be true of everybody, but that we sh- we were we were viewed as fair and neutral in a way that our goal was: Hey, you're Democrats. All of you are Democrats. Even if you don't trust necessarily the National Democratic Party. Trust the Ohio Democratic Party, and so far it's paid off well. We've had a very, unlike some of the dramatic meetings around the country, our efforts to put our delegation together have been unanimous, drama-free, strong feelings for each candidate. And so our hope is that that translates down the road. One of the things we're excited about, one of our congressional candidates, he's a huge Bernie Sanders grassroots leader. I love that. Because whatever happens in the, let's assume it goes like we expect and Hillary Clinton's a candidate, we have a very identified Bernie Sanders top leader running for Congress. And and my hope is that all those supporters see, hey, we're part of the party. One of our key people is running. And maybe they say, well, that's where we want to contribute this fall, but they can still see that they're part of it. So Who is that, David? Uh, Keith Mundy is his name. Yeah. Uh, are you going to be at the convention? I'll be there. Yeah, absolutely. You're gonna, I'm you're not be going there. this time. Not this time. You're, not you, this time. You, you know been, what? You've been going. To you the, know, <laughs> well, you know the old expression, once you go Barack, you never go back. <laughs> oh, God. Um, it's just, I don't know that I'll ever top the feeling that I had in 2008. And so I, I feel like that's good enough for me. But, you know, I want to add one other thing to, to David's litany of why I think this party would be unified going into the fall. And that is that one of the top, most nationally recognized advocates for Bernie Sanders is our own former state senator, Nina Turner. And knowing her as well as I do, and David does, I have no doubt that she is going to help lead the charge because if there's anybody who understands history and understands where Ohio fits into history and how important it is that we win, it's her. And she's going to go out and she's going to motivate and energize people to turn out. Well, I just saw a Bernie Sanders' uh, address uh, to his supporters. We got over 10 million votes nationally. Uh, California has yet to complete, right. completely, uh, you know, count all the votes, but uh, 10 million votes. So 
And his message was he's going to go into the convention uh, fighting, uh, fighting for something, but he's going to help to defeat Trump. Just, I just want to ask you, you know, what do you think? I mean, there was this, this amazing, uh, you know, movement and energy um, around his camp. Um, I think the Democratic Party would be just it would be a huge loss, as you said, David, to to miss that. Or yeah, to, no, to, I agree. To... And, and from a, I, I agree, big picture. I I loved having those energetic meetups at our headquarters. I loved that it was new faces that we hadn't seen before. I, I wanted them to each sign up, so we captured that and kept it going forward. Um, to the extent it's people who haven't been as engaged, people who honestly before didn't think of themselves as Democrats or others who just this is who they liked. I think it it was great, but it also practically speaking. It was 44% of the Democratic vote in that primary. And well, 44%, 44% is amazing. Right. Yeah. And if so if we don't unify, and I think we will, but so when I've had people say to me, well, this and that, and why are we, you know, why are we being so neutral? I would get criticized, honestly. Why are you being so fair to both sides? I said, A, I like the new energy. B, that's 44% of our electorate after the primary. We need every one of those folks or everyone possible, including the huge amount of young people that were part of that 44%. Did he, did he win? What percentage did no, he, he win? No, he, he got to 44 in Ohio. So and and sh- what percentage of, like, for example, under, you know, under oh, 25? I'm not sure. Or- I would think it like everywhere else. It was, she did very well here. Let's be clear. The map in Ohio of Hillary Clinton's looked very different than most states where in most states she won the, the sort of larger urban counties. And, and then you look around and it was red, not red, but Bernie Sanders' color, whatever that was. The rest of the state in Ohio, actually, she won. I can't remember every. She won the vast majority of counties. So one of the things I was going to say is the Clintons have deep roots here from the 08 election primary. So she did very well, but a lot of young people were excited. We have college Democrat chapters all over the state, and they would tell us, you know, most of our campuses were Bernie Sanders people. And I said, embrace them. Like that's great. Get them involved because a lot of them. It's like the whole the whole broader picture. A lot of those Bernie Sanders supporters on those college campuses were not the ones in the Ohio College Democrat chapter. They were just progressive kids who were excited. And I'd have kid, I'd have young people say to me, "Well, we're all Hillary people. What do we do?" About the-? I said, "Put make sure they're on your College Democrat board. We want them involved. We want them part of it." So the bottom line is that in Ohio it was forty four percent, and we need to welcome and embrace all of them. We've done that through our convention delegation, working closely with Senator Turner on that and uh, Keith Mundy and others. And then my hope is we roll forward between now and November and just build on that. Yeah. Well, we're going to see those 1,900 delegates that are coming in for Bernie Sanders. Um, there, There's an agenda. Can you guess, Sabode, since you've been so involved with the past conventions, what their play might be, what it might look like? I, th- I think they have a very specific policy agenda led by Senator Sanders, they're going to want to see changes uh, in the. Pl- they're they're going to want to see content in the platform that suits that progressive reformist agenda, and they're going to want to see structural reforms to the party and the way it selects candidates on a going forward basis. And frankly, I think a consensus around both is going to build fairly quickly because I really think that's where the heart of the party is right now. Now, I have to say the only thing I saw in the last week that I found mildly irritating from the Sanders camp was they weren't pushing caucus reform, that we should eliminate caucuses around the country because they are fundamentally undemocratic and you have to be a, a person who's not working a shift who can go at that time. <laughs> right. So I'm so, I, I think right. that that is clearly a small d democratic reform that we need. But, you know, people are playing, even Senator Sanders is not above politics in terms of, you know, wanting the methods that work best for him. But I think all of that will shake out. There will be compromises. There will be reform and change as this party continually has renewed itself over the course of decades. And it's a great moment. I mean, it's a great moment. We have been so focused on the poison coming from the other side and the fear associated with that that we haven't yet taken a moment. And I I mean, David has really kind of opened up my eyes here that we have a lot of reasons to look at ourselves too and not necessarily pat ourselves on the back and be complacent, but at least to say, you know what? Where we are in terms of our hearts, in terms of our policy, in terms of where we want to lead the country, the processes that we want to do to be fair, I mean, we... We deserve to be commended for that. 
And we should be proud of those things. We should be proud to be Democrats, and we should be proud to have a vision, a progressive vision of change. And I think you know, it was Bill Clinton who said that when you have, I'm paraphrasing him here, he said that when you have a candidate who's peddling hope and change and you have a candidate who's peddling fear, hope and change is going to win every time. And I, I truly believe that. I really believe that in this campaign, we are going to offer a contrast. It's going to be close, but we are going to offer a contrast that is so stark that we are going to win new hearts and minds, and that's going to help carry us into the future. The thing, though, that um, this election cycle uh, really impressed upon me is the hunger that people who might fall under the big tent Democrat are asking the party to be bolder, to think bigger, uh, to include uh, a a very multicultural uh, vision of the future. Um, It's really pushing uh, the edges of where the party's been willing to go, David. And what gives you hope there? How do you assess it? Because it sounds like you're making some changes in the state, but that's yeah. not the case in other yeah. states. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that if it wasn't already clear to people, I mean, in a weird way, we talked about this earlier, Donald Trump is, is pushing that conversation anyway. And I think he's calling the question mm-hmm. to all of us. He's called the question. He's called the question. What's the question? What the question is, what is America? What is our party in the end? Why are we different than the other side? What really gets our back up? What really offends us? And I think by calling that question between now and November, if we answer it in a way that maybe too we, too often past we were too shy about, that we are the ones that embrace, we love the diversity, we love you know that that history of, of immigration. It's what it, Mario it, Cuomo yeah. said in his nineteen eighty four convention speech that we are the party that stands for all of those things. Yeah, and if that and, and that so was a call to action he, for it, me. And, and this isn't one of those careful elections where we're playing on the edges of that little undecided margin of you know who, who knows who. But this is the big question: What is America, and and what do you believe? And and we get to answer that in a full throated way. My hope is that that does. You know, that gets people there who really maybe have been there but didn't even want to talk about it that way. I mean, because I think that's what this election is becoming. Uh, it's already become that. And and I think that as it becomes that, it's an opportunity for, for a, a big step forward uh, as a country and also as a party to be more clear than ever what, what we're about. And, and, and that in the end, we're about this coming together of the great diversity of our country in a way that sometimes elections end up being about silly little marginal issues that someone did a focus. That's not what this election will be. And I think the we'll be better stuff, because yeah. of it. This is the big stuff. Yeah. So, Bo, what are you uh, thinking about in terms of, uh, when we look at uh, 2016, when you look, look just look a year or two ahead in Ohio's political future, what do you think is the most important thing next? I mean, we're, we've talked about the big question, but what's next in terms of uh, being able to make that big vision re- a reality in the state? Well, I, David alluded to it earlier. We can't just win in November and then pull up stakes and fold the tents up and act as if it's over because if experience over the last 10, 12 years has taught us anything. It is that if we don't remain engaged and energized and figure out a way to keep our electorate engaged and energized in the years between presidential elections, which David taught me today to not call off election years. He gets really offended by that. Off election years yeah. is offensive. Yeah, off because, <laughs> yeah, I, I learned that today, that that's an offensive term. And, and he's right, that it suggests that somehow those are less important years. That, that if we pull up stakes at those times, then we will have failed because we won't have the capacity or the infrastructure to maintain Ohio's preeminence in the country as the bellwether state. As, and, and we've gotten killed by our Ohio General Assembly. We've gotten killed by our governor. I mean, it was really fascinating for those of us who really know Governor Kasich to watch this campaign and watch him be the reasonable guy in the room. It, it was so antithetical. Why? Because he's not reasonable because here he's in Ohio. Not. I mean, you look. He's at, terrible in Ohio. You. That's you, so. Only next to Trump would he be. Uh, right. Only next to Cruz would he be. The, we all in Ohio <laughs> couldn't. It was frustrating. I'd go to events and other places. Well, Kasich seems reasonable. We're, we're Texas when it comes to a woman's right to choose. We fought 
the very, I mean, where, what case was it that ended marriage equality? Ohio's case, Jim Overfell. That's Why? Right. Because John Kasich fought it all the way to the end in one of the most horrific Mike cases. Mike DeWine, too. Mike DeWine. You know, our gerrymandering is bad as anywhere in the country. On Voting suppression every year. Yeah. But here Kasich is and, now the reasonable guy. He hasn't been moderate or effective. And the budgets. The yeah, budgets. The, yeah. How did he supposedly restore Ohio to phys- fiscal health? He did it by crushing and demolishing Ohio cities and by removing their revenue through the local government fund. And so when we look at the sort of national perception of of John Kasich is like, well, yeah, sure, he's sane next to Donald Trump. But when we look at that, we realize, no, they've really hurt our state from a woman's woman's right to choose onward. And so what we have to do is We've, we've gotten away from the days where there are sensible, moderate Republicans that we can work with across the aisle because the gerrymandering is too extreme. You've got people who are nuts getting into these General Assembly positions uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the House, in the Senate. You've got a governor who is an extremist as well. And so as a result, we've been in a situation where we haven't had the capacity to govern ourselves in a sensible way. And what does that do? That affects the entire country. Our House delegation in Congress, overwhelmingly, not just Republican, but extremist Republican. And so what happens, national policy on common sense gun safety reform or anything else doesn't move forward well, in Congress. You know, so was, so we yeah. affect everything. Yeah. And I'm telling you, Amy, we're carrying that on our shoulders now. We recognize that Ohio in this way has hurt the country and ourselves by not having the capacity or infrastructure in the non-presidential years. You just came from an event with Senator Cory Booker celebrating the celebrating the fact that uh, voting is going to be easier in Ohio. Can you explain, David? Yeah, we, we actually uh, had another victory. We're, we've had quite a three or four weeks in Ohio. We have a, a legislature and a secretary of state that it, and an attorney general who supports them that insist on uh, trying to claw back all the progress that was made in Ohio after a, uh, we had a 2004 cycle where we were a national embarrassment. Uh, oh, yeah. Just remind everyone yeah. what the so national we, embarrassment we had was. Lo- we, we couldn't handle the turnout. People stood in line for hours and hours and hours. Ken Blackwell became infamous overnight for all sorts of things. But in the end, it was clear that we needed to expand early vote to be able to have the capacity to deal with the, the number of people who want to vote, especially in the presidential election. Well, people are blaming what happened in Ohio on big losses on the Democratic yeah. side. Yeah, and so, but but over the next couple of years, a bipartisan group of people came together, and we expanded early vote uh, to to a, to a very nice window. Uh, we expanded to a point where we could actually have people for a week have the opportunity to register and vote on the same day, and other changes. And ever since, and that led to a phenomenal turnout in two thousand eight. We, we obviously did well in that election, and that's the part that has propelled the Republican legislature ever since they took control in 2010 with John Kasich and John Husted to do everything they could to claw back that progress. The good news is, with the legal help of, of amazing lawyers like Sabot Chandra and others, our party and other organizations from the NAACP to Obama for America to a group called NEOC, which represents homeless folks, we have gone to court on every one of these laws in one almost every single case in the last four weeks one case we won we took to court they tried to get rid of that week where you could vote and register in the same week it was an additional early week of voting we showed that that was racially discriminatory in its impact and a Republican judge, a Bush appointee, struck it down. Uh, Sabode can tell more about his case, but another set of rules they passed, which added a number of pieces of information that you had to fill out in order to vote. Sabode successfully showed that that, too, had a discriminatory impact. In certain cases of votes being thrown out for the silliest of reasons, Sabode did an amazing job. And then just today, they added about a month ago, the legislature passed this bill that if you had, if you wanted to go to the court to have 
voting hours extended because there was some you know critical problem that was keeping people from voting they said up front you have to pay this whopping bond that would take care of whatever costs came from keeping it over open for the next hour essentially a different form of a poll tax and just today thanks to uh, a i think the fear that we were going to sue and win again and b a whole lot of advocacy the governor did uh, veto this bill so uh, over time we have literally won again and again and again thank goodness and we now still have a pretty open window to vote so it, today was another big day in a month of really big victories and you celebrated with uh, senator we were Corey with senator booker, booker and and um, he's obviously one of our great stars nationally uh, we both happened to know him because we all went to law school together many you went to La- yale law school yeah yeah I, I went i went to undergrad with him so it's oh, kind of an, it's kind of nice too. yeah actually he and i didn't overlap at the law school but we did overlap at stanford so That's yeah funny. yeah it is funny yeah. We know, know him different ways. Right. What, what, I th- what I think is so critical here is, uh, look, we're uh, just coming into, in a few weeks, the Democratic National Convention, uh, Hillary Clinton as the presumptive nominee. Ohio is going to continue to be, it's the swing state of swing states. Absolutely. Uh, and um, am I right that no president has ever won without winning Ohio. Is that right? Because I no I Republican heard... president. Yeah, no yeah. Republican has won the presidency since Abraham Lincoln without Ohio, and no Democrat, I believe, has been able to win it, with the exception of uh, John Kennedy and Franklin Roosevelt. Wow, so. wow. And we have a, a context where I know over twenty states have these voter restriction laws, maybe twenty-two or more. So what you're you're in this context in Ohio, being Ohio being such an important uh, state uh, this year, this presidential year, trying to bring as many people to the polls as possible, it's been a tough fight. I I you know, I think I think one one thing Sabot I I want to call attention to is people focus on the presidency or they focus on the Senate or the Congress. Uh, often overlooking the fact that Republicans have been doing major damage in terms of access to the voter, uh, the ballot box, uh, because they control these statewide offices. Yeah, I want to give you a few examples of this so that your listeners really have a sense of the kind of absurdity we're dealing with here. And, and there, it's amazing that there hasn't been more national attention to this, and, and you can help with this. I'm going to give you a few quick examples of the kind of ridiculous things. Okay, so going back to a guy named Ken Blackwell, who was a Republican Ohio Secretary of State in the mid-2000s, this guy actually put out a rule saying that if you registered to vote on anything other than the right weight of cardstock, that he would not process your voter registration. Wait, what? It had to be it had the card stock on which you registered had to be of a certain weight. So if you tried to submit your voter registration on a regular piece of paper, he wasn't going to process your registration. Now, at least at that time we had some media that were paying attention locally, regionally, nationally, and so there was a, there was a hue and outcry over that and then he backed down after, you know, helping make Ohio a national embarrassment on that issue. So that's the kind of example. Now you'd think, okay, that was in the mid 2000s, it can't possibly be that bad. Now, we just had in March the top deputy, the Ohio Secretary of State, sit under oath on the stand, and I kid you not, with a straight face, say that it is their position that when you fill your name out on the form accompanying your absentee ballot or provisional ballot, when you fill it out and it says print name, if you write your name in cursive, even if it's legible, even if they have no doubt as to your identity, your vote should not count. You should be disenfranchised. He said this under oath in open federal court. And I mean, I truly thought I was hallucinating. I was, I was listening to this testimony. <laughs> this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. David gave the example today at the luncheon with Senator Booker of an 87-year-old woman with macular degeneration who filling out that form of unnecessary information that they've imposed transposed two digits of her social security number. Now, keep in mind that Republicans like to say, but she's got to prove her identity. Remember, she already proved her identity when qualifying for the ballot. This was an absentee ballot. She's given an absentee ballot. She's already proved her identity. They've got her name already on it. They've got a barcode associated, but there's no reason what they're asking for is unnecessary information. Now, why? You might say, are they stupid? No, 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 no. These folks are crazy like foxes, okay? What they're doing is they're playing statistical games where they're trying to shave off just a certain portion of the electorate that they believe statistically is democratic. So poorer people, illiterate people, 
of predominantly African Americans are going to be more disproportionately impacted by these kinds of policies. That's what the Bush appointee federal judge found in the Golden Week case. That is what Judge Marbley found in this case related to the so-called five fields, the extra information that they're requiring. So these schemes are all very clever. And then even after admitting under oath, Husted's, uh, Secretary Husted, the Secretary of State's deputy admitted, yeah, w- fraud, infinitesimal problem in Ohio. There's virtually no fraud in Ohio. He nevertheless goes out as recently as a few days ago in an interview and says, oh, no, we're trying to protect against fraud, when his own studies show there is no fraud. All right, David, you know, when I hear this, I hear the detail. I hear the ridiculousness of it. With the success you were just telling us about, is Ohio good? Are, are are the voters in Ohio protected? Is there fraud out there? Because, what are Democrats going to do? So the, the both both under oath as well as the court's findings, there has been almost no fraud whatsoever. The good news is right now, status quo. If we win our appeals, uh, we're pretty good. Um, and here's the but here's the real term uh, effects of this. Golden week, that extra, that early week of voting, they tried to get rid of the vote, but but it was something voters could use in eight and twelve. We're talking about, depending on how you organize, 60, 80, 100,000 people that use that week. I think it was 80 and 60 in 8 and 12, and we think if, if organized right, it's even more. Um, the, the votes that were thrown out for the ridiculous reasons Sabode mentioned, we're talking about thousands of voters. So, anyway, they, 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 yeah, and looking at uh, 2012, I don't know if you can pull this number off the top of your head, but Obama won Ohio by how many votes? Because we're really talking about some thin margins. We are. Here. I can't remember the exact number, but we the 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 number of people who used gold that week was eighty thousand voters. So I heard they're called souls to the polls. Yeah, that, was, that was what it, you would you would use because you could register and vote on the same day. It did become an amazing week to organize, and we're going to do that again this time. That's why they targeted it, and there was it wasn't taken up by the judge, but there was literally a. There were literally comments by Republican officials and party chairs that that was the reason they did it was to stop that kind of organization, and and um, so so we're thrilled about the win. But what you want to talk about cynical? Another one that we stopped a year ago was another big source of votes in Ohio are college students, and 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 Barack Obama, especially in eight and twelve, college campuses in this state were just so energized. A lot of these college students are not from Ohio. They come to college here. And and again, the legislature can't stand that all these young progressive people go to Ohio State or Denison or Kenyon or Cincinnati. And so, they're too young to hate. Yeah, they're always trying to stop that. That really bothers them. And they've said on the record things that the Constitution hasn't allowed for decades under the Supreme Court rulings. Oh, they're not from here. Why are we help? So l- last year... In a transportation bill, they snuck in a provision that if you are an out-of-state college student and you register to vote in Ohio, within 30 days, you have to change your driver's license to Ohio, register, pay the fees, and if you don't, you've just committed a misdemeanor. That, again, was about 100,000-plus votes. Once again, though, we, we raised such a stink. And Nina Turner, she was on Rachel Maddow. College kids were calling the governor, including Republicans. Just like today, we were able to get a line item veto out of that one. But they are coming up with, I mean, I can't think of anything. It's all the, the creativity. It's and really the, the, the devious I mean, young, creativity. Yeah. Young people, we want, we want young people, if you're from Ohio and someone from New York or Pennsylvania is going to Ohio State, forget voting. We want those young people to stay here long term so we can grow. And the idea that you're willing to literally say, oh, you're not from here. We don't want you to vote here. That's that's not only wrong and from a voting standpoint, that's giving away your future, but they're willing to do that because they know it impacts these elections. So the good news is we we are on the front lines in every way in Ohio, but we're on the front lines of protecting the right to vote. We take that very seriously, and we do have a nice winning streak going right now. So so good for now. Good for now. The Ohio Democratic Party is fighting the fight, uh, and it, it sounds like it's looking positive for uh, the general election November 2016. This is Amy Allison with Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. Well, today, Republicans have majority control of the Senate, and they're representing Ohio and nationally. And we at Democracy in Color are committed to holding the Democratic Party accountable to using the winning formula. We know for a fact 
that people of color are the key for Democrats to win in places like Pennsylvania, Florida, and Ohio. These critical Senate campaigns must show a real commitment to taking back the Senate by investing in people of color. See more detail in democracyandcolor.com. Special thanks to Sabot Chandra and David Pepper when I visited them in Cleveland, Ohio. And by the way, I was there for game six. And of course, to all the Clevelanders listening, congratulations on the Cavaliers' big win. And that's coming from a true Warriors fan. It's really great to see Cleveland celebrating like they continue to do. And special thanks to Susan Sandler and Steve Phillips, who launched the 2016 Fannie Lou Hamer Report, and to campaign director Jessica Byrd. To learn how the five critical Senate campaigns and the Democratic Party committees are doing uh, mobilizing new American majority voters, visit democracyandcolor.com and view the report cards uh, that are online right now. Democracy and Color is a project of PowerPack Plus. This episode was produced by Lulu Matute with technical support from Anthony Hernandez and Austin McMakin. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. And until next time, thanks for joining us.